Good morning, this is Linda Crater, and I wanted to update you. Holly Farrell and I attended the Veterans Family Caregiver and Survivor Federal Advisory Committee meeting on January 25th and 26th in Washington, D.C. The meeting was held at the, it's actually beautiful, uh, Red Cross headquarters building, but it's acoustically difficult because the ceilings were like 20 feet high. We have recorded this for you because the meeting will be formally recorded and transcribed and put in the federal record, but it may take up to 90 days for that to happen. And we know that many of you would like to have an update earlier than that. We are very glad that veteran warriors and veteran caregiver attended, along with many of the other military service organizations and veteran service organizations. A key part of the meeting that is not included in these recordings are the comments made by caregivers, veterans, and advocates but they will be in the full recording to be provided later. Thank you for your patience and listening. And so we value your comments. Thank you for being here. And I promise that we exist to try to put all what's in this one. I have 80 days of the fact that you're sitting here and not talking all day. And there's so much admiration of you guys. So thank you for doing that. Uh, and then the last thing I'll say is we had a little bit of a challenge finding a uh, place for this meeting. So thank you to Red Cross for this incredible room and for the reminder that we no longer need to wear dresses like the one in the lobby. We welcome very fast that especially. Uh, we will make a big effort. In fact, we will find a facility for the June meeting. Hopefully, it will be the most of the time that. We'll be able to have both virtual and in-person capabilities. So it wasn't possible this time. Our apologies. That's another one to So I'm also going to keep up. Senator Dole kept this baby on time to the morning. So Betty is going to be the warrior princess who helps me do that. Um, and I appreciate that. And with um, that, right on the issue, that's probably enough. I think we're up. Uh, oh, Um, so I am going to turn this over to uh, Mr. Moraney, who is the Director of Advisory Committee Management. So thank you so much. Good morning. Good morning. As you can see, I'm very animated, I'm very energized. And I'm very honored to have the opportunity to uh, talk to this committee and uh, the global. I'm uh, Jeff Marini. I'm the director of the Advisory Committee Management Office. We oversee VA's portfolio of 26 federal advisory committees, which cover health, research, benefits, and underserved veteran groups. So uh, I, was, I was sitting in the audience, and uh, the young lady next to me asked me, I said, How many of these do you attend? I said, how many hours in the day are there? <laughs> all, all. That's my job. We oversee that portfolio, committee members, committee managers, your activities, your packages that go to the secretary, and your meetings. Your meetings are open to the public. So what's the purpose of me being here today besides to say welcome? I'm actually going to give you some rules of the road. Why? Because I want you to be successful. I don't want the body of your work to wind up being challenged. Nine times out of ten, it's challenge to go out and redo it. So we're going to make sure that you are well-grounded in the rules of both the Federal Biden Act, the ones that are put, 
community operation. VA policy, and then we're going to make some best practices. Okay? But I want to begin with a little bit of history. You can go to my slide there. Looks a little different from what I see there. Uh, the uh, Federal Advisory Committee Act came into being in 1972, and literally overnight, 8,000 Federal Advisory Committees went to 1,000. Today, some 50 years later, there's not going to be a Federal Advisory Committee yet. About 1,000. Yeah. So, FACA really has helped a lot in how you establish a Federal Advisory Committee, how you manage a Federal Advisory Committee, and how you terminate a Federal Advisory Committee. And yes, the old body committee, whether it's statutory or discretionary, like this one, can be terminated. So your body of work has to produce results. It has to affect the veteran constituency that you've been designed to serve. We'll also say, thank you very much for your service. Thank you very much for your service, and we'll move on. Uh, we have new federal advisory committees in the VA portfolio. Last year, we set up an advisory committee for tribal and Indian affairs. 15 members from tribal nations. Their first report is in the uh, system going to the secretary. They're doing good work. And this year, we have a statutory mandate to stand up the Department of Veteran Affairs, U.S. Outlying Territories and Fairly Associated States Federal Advisory that will have members from U.S. territories and freely associated states. You literally have to be living in one of those to allow, long, etc., etc., et cetera, et cetera, so uh, And it's going to have uh, the focus in bringing VA benefits and services, particularly the recommendations, to enhance those folks that are served in the service. So we're always growing and expanding. Last year we terminated a federal advisory committee, the Genomic Medicine Program Advisory Committee, uh, after 13 years of existence. And prior to that, we had terminated the Qualification Abuse Federal Advisory Committee, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So, just trying to give you an idea, what you do matters, and you have to do something to matter, okay? So, some of the aspects of FACA that you need to know is that any time you meet the Federal Advisory Committee Act is applicable. Any time you meet as a parent committee, but the other privileges you can meet outside of the public eyes of subcommittee, not be able to do this for sure. But some of the things that uh, you have to have uh, in order to be legal, you have to have a signed chart, and your chart is signed every other year by the city secretary. In order for that to be signed, the secretary looks at the charter, looks at the recommendations that the staff made for adjusting the charter, size of the committee budget, etc., etc., so forth and so on. Also looks at what's called the balance plan. The balance plan is integral to the membership. What skill sets do you have to have? What experiences do you have to have? And yes, what demographics does the committee have to reflect in order to serve the veteran constituency it serves? All of that is grounded in fact, and all of that is looked at every other year by the secretary in order to make sure that the, uh, the committee is legal and can do its body of work. Public meetings. Your meetings are open to the public 99.9% .9 of the time. 
and another 0.01% of the time, because you're doing a tour of a VA facility, or you're hearing very sensitive testimony from a family member, veteran, etc., etc., and so forth and so on. I'll talk about that a I think records are maintained. As a, the designated federal official said, uh, Dr. Brown, uh, Mrs. Brown said, all of your meetings are recorded. Those recordings are turned into minutes, and those minutes are available to the public. The requires those minutes to be available to the public within nine days. Any presentation that goes on here, available to the public. So, I, I, I want you to freely deliberate on what the subject matter is uh, as it comes up, but understand that that's going to show up in the minutes. Okay? So think carefully. You've got two years to listen twice as much as you talk. Okay? Uh, but you've got to produce. Next slide, So on my next slide, the big takeaway is this bullet right here. Everything else kind of repeats. A quorum. In order for you to legally deliberate and vote on recommendations, you have to have a quorum. So if your membership consists of 15 members, that are duly appointed by the Secretary of Law is calculated for a 50% of the membership plus one. You gotta have eight votes. Eight votes, President of meeting, constitutes a official meeting. Obviously, it was announced in the federal membership 15 days prior, and uh, the results of that meeting can go for the terms of that meeting. So please work your calendars so that you always have a form. Okay? That's a little bit different from subcommittees. If a subcommittee had five people, they don't have to have four. Three people from that subcommittee, to meet, do their body of work. Why? Because the subcommittee doesn't report to the secretary. The subcommittee doesn't report to the director of the veterans union's office. Subcommittee reports to the parent. That's it. So their body of work always has to be presented in a public forum. Interestingly, subcommittees can have non-parent committee members as well. So if there's some kind of expertise you want to explore, talk to your designated co-authors. You know, two subcommittees, two, two subcommittees that this committee has um, can, can explore bringing on other subcommittee expertise to help build draft recommendations that are presented to the parent committee and uh, deliberate on Next slide, uh, As I said, most of your meetings will be open to the public, but you can close a meeting for very specific reasons. Very specific reasons, and they're kind of captured on the slide. And an example of that would be you're hearing proprietary information. Some company wants to present an app to be an app to VA that will help track family issues, whatever, right? They want to present that to you for your consideration and recommendation on the sector. We only open up the meeting. That allows us to keep that meeting closed because that's their, that's their sweat equity that they're presenting to you. It's proprietary. So proprietary would be one reason. Again, I talked about that you might be hearing some testimony from a family member, a survivor, or even a veteran who could better hone in that um, recommendation that you're going to make to the secretary. That would probably have privacy or HIPAA type information in it, I think. Again, closed to the, to, the, uh, to the public. The bottom line is if you're going to close a meeting, 
that deliberation amongst the members to the chair, to the DFO, to my office. I consult with the Office of General Counsel. You know, take a legal view on that. We come back and compile it all from the notice of meeting, which goes out to the public 15 years later. Okay. So you'll know very quickly whether or not you can go to meet for X, Y, or Z before you put in that final agenda, before we put out that notice of meeting that we sent to you. Uh, a very, very, very rigorous and deliberate process. Don't be, don't be scared of this. Uh, if you need to go to the meeting for a good reason, please do so. But understand it's going to go through a lot of scrutiny. Okay? That's all. You can meet privately, though. I want to emphasize that. You still, as a parent committee, can meet privately. And it's for two reasons. We call them the making of the sign. If you're meeting privately to talk about administrative details, there were administrative details that afforded you or enabled this meeting to occur. Where, when, why, is it going to be hybrid meeting with virtual, all of Those kind of discussions is a making of sense. If this committee goes to another site or location across the coast, or its next meeting in June, the meeting in fall, again, you can discuss those administrative reasons privately. Without the public, without the OCD. The other one you can do to be privately is you're talking about preparatory. Preparatory work would be, hey, this nonprofit has a body of research that we want to get into. I know everybody's busy, but I'm not suffering today. We need to look at capital and suffering future. That's preparatory. Okay? So again, bumper sticker, making other sausage, you can be private. You can do that on an administrative call, you can do it on a team's meeting, no longer list there. The bottom line, hopefully read, is don't talk about recommendations if you're being private. You can only deliberate and talk about recommendations publicly. Alright? Keep yourself in your work sacrosy. You can only talk about recommendations as a parent committee public. As a subcommittee, what do you do? The team yourself. As a subcommittee, not yourself that. You can do that outside of public. Why? Because your body of work doesn't count until the parent committee hears it and the public hears it public. Okay? And we expect you to be moving through and shaping making looking at research, doing testimony collection. So Without the script. When you meet privately to do administrative or preparatory work, don't talk about recommendations. If you do, that goes on the cutting floor when you start all over. And yes, I agree. Not the person who talks. Don't go. Chair. Don't go. Go back to start. Not the person who talks. Acceptance. All right. I told uh, Dr. Brown that I would be expanding this section by about 30 seconds. <laughs> and this goes to the fact that the vast majority of our 1,400 federal advisory committee members are very important. Very important people who talk to legislators, congressmen, senators, or staffers, governors, mayors, and that kind of stuff. Guess what? You can do that. 
you have a legal right to do that. There's a caveat, you're doing it as a private citizen. You are not representing these committees. You are not representing the Department of Veterans Affairs. And you, you're doing it as a private citizen. So you need to inform, part of your duty is to inform whoever you're talking to, hey, I know you want to be here because of my great resume and because of my member of the but I'm only here as a private citizen. So I can't talk about uh, recommendations that we're working on for present or future recommendations. I can only talk about past and give you my impressions as a private citizen. It's very important you understand that. I say that because we've had examples in the past of individuals that have gone beyond that mandate, backup mandate, or that three mandate. And we've had to do investigations and everything. They didn't think very much of We would talk to folks outside of this venue who were in the private system. read that. I'm not speaking for the department, I'm not speaking for the department. Yes, sir. I'm assuming you're doing that. Yeah, that, that would be a good course of action, yes, sir. Um, you know, the other thing I would tell you is uh, we all always offer you a clarity session. In, you are invited to speak to Congress, staffers, and the like. You want clarity on that, contact that. Those ground to contact my office, we'll get somebody to look to see. I'm in the phone. Nine of these rules, we ask you to have questions. I've done that hundreds of times. And we work like a team. We've got from the hills and the plain, we've got from Please do it. Please do it. 
really don't want you to be in your position, the amount of energy and time and uh, synchronization you have with your social personal power to sit and advocate for something that's not in your chart. Because, as we used to say, Subcommittees, you got subcommittees, stay in the subcommittee alone, draft recommendations there, and then present Subcommittees are really the backbone of the community that we have a lot of research activities. So keep doing that. Meeting mechanics has to do with designing a meeting. I always advocate that you design meetings so that you hear from a briefer, but you also have time to deliberate and talk about that value, that information, you know, where it may be, and certain recommendations, that kind of stuff. So continue to design that. You can say, hey, am I involved in design? Talk to Jerry. Jerry is a design, but you have an input as a member. Cross-committee collaboration. I just told you about two committees, uh, but go back to the committee members' handbook. You'll see we have 25 others, which have not the same mission as you, but parallel missions. And you do cross committee collaboration at the second level. Hey, we all have been to do for the last few years. We get a copy of the last report you had, and you've got family members, family members, members, that's cross committee collaboration. And you've done that in the past, so continue to do that as best practice. Um, we use the old college smart template, smart template, even if you don't write exactly against specific medical action or realistic accommodation, you use that. The kind of board game or red team, whatever recommendation you come up with. Is it specific for disease? Right. Is it something we can measure? No, we don't do stuff that we can't measure. We can measure. Is it actionable? Is it within our authorities as an agency? Is it realistic for VA to do the recommendation we're recommending? Can it be done over a period of time? Or does it have to be done immediately? That's what the smart template is. Guess what? It's in the uh, we have library service. Good old 18th century librarian. What? They're not from the <laughs> You know what I'm saying. They'll look stuff up for them. All you gotta do is ask. Ask them to do it. They can compile that plan. They'll do very high level nexus, nexus searches, etc., etc., etc. All you have to do And field reasons. That's up to you. Human Washington, D.C. has its pros and cons of going out to the field where your stakeholders live, where your stakeholders want to sit in the audience and hear what you do and in your ear. Emphasize things is very important. I always emphasize to the right federal advisory committee that a battle of Washington, D.C. virtual. Field, field, outside of DC. This is a good battle. So consider that. I'm not telling you what to do. It's a best practice. And then last but not least, if you have any backup or ethics questions, please, I mean, you're very smart, talented people. Don't struggle with that stuff. Ask the DFO. We'll get that answer to you. If that's Mostly, that falls on the lines of conflict of interest. If you think you have conflict of interest, shoot that barrel quickly. Okay? If you'd like to resolve that, you can do it. Um, 
unlike in the equipment that each and every one of you will scrupulously look at before you're nominated and then scrupulously looked at before the secretary appointed you. So that, that work that the staff did, we want to value that. We value the sacrifices and the professionalism skill sets and expertise you bring to the table, but we don't want you to go out with a backup or ethical violation. So ask, ask, ask. Okay? That's all I have. Yes, ma'am, any questions? Yes,
all of our learning in terms of the signal. We are going to run ourselves as a director of the center of the We have to get to all the evidence and care of the Understand their achievement. Um, because if we don't measure that all of that And so uh, that's the first thing I guess I want to call your attention to and underscore to you um, will be a continual point of reference for us in the year ahead. Expressly on the carrier equipment. So, what is, what is the experience of program funds in the carrier equipment? And that's particularly important because we obviously have to wait for the carrier And we end up in that place because we haven't given sufficient notice. Or analysis of the So, um, it's one kind of underscore that. So, when you know, Don gives you, when Don gave you, he started doing that. Don gave you, and it's one underscore that that kind of life of how we assess the community. Now, there's other things that are Including Thank you. 
It's also true that the most innovative period in the United States government, at the time when the United States government was assessing the political economy, as we go through the late 1800s, there's just no question that more and more seniors want to stay at home, want to be cared for by their families. So we have an opportunity to be And so this is an opportunity where the VA has a tradition of the Uh, I will say to you guys that I don't 
of maybe accessing benefits in order to be expanded as he stated that we're going to select those three opportunities and we're all the associated communities are doing to help veterans realize what they're eligible for if they if they register and ask. Yeah. And it goes to the credit of the veterans that take the money. Susan, how many of those are not getting care of you? No question. I think that's the big bigger issue is. I can say two things to that. One is I tend to believe that the veteran experience may not be different than my own. Everybody learns. We need to figure out how to get trusted Are not necessarily available everywhere, and we're working on that. 
We are currently undergoing um, an expansion of our, both our veteran-directed care and our medical foster home programs so that they are at all, um, at all VAs. The, this is hot off the press, not even signed yet, but I will let you know that um, our veteran-directed care expansion um, just last week was approved by the VHA Governing Board um, to have an accelerated um, expansion. Originally, it was set um, for five fiscal years, um, and with the accelerated schedule, um, we predict that we should have um, what would have been the final veteran or the final program in only veterans approximately two years earlier. So we are very excited. Um, it's it's work, but it is it is something that we just you know we we feel so horrible. I will tell you when we hear that you know a veteran you know either moves or hears from a friend that there's this program where I live and it's not over here. So um, I, I just want to say that we, we do recognize that and we are very much working on um, standardizing um, the, really the benefits package and the programs that are available to all veterans. Um, and I've already spoken a little bit about facility-based care. Next slide, please. So this is one of the big um, new hot off the press um, items as well. So with um, the omnibus, um, the Cleveland Dole Act was part of that, and I'm sure you all have read all 4,000 and some pages, um, but Section 165 of the Cleveland Dole Act does um, basically give us now um, the authority for a five-year pilot but we're going under the, the assumption that once, once something is out there, once people are getting something paid for, it's going to be really hard to take it back. Um, but basically, for veterans who would be eligible for um, the VA to pay for their nursing home care, um, VA will be able to pay for medical foster home instead. So medical foster home, for those of you who are not aware, it is basically um, a home setting. Um, people open up their homes, um, it is the, the lay person, the, and I'm going to call it little C caregiver, um, who basically provides um, that nursing home level of day-to-day -day care for the veteran in their home. Um, there is, there's obviously a huge process um, to have, you know, the approval and all of that, but as we are expanding the program in general, and now that we are going to be able to pay, um, for those, um, that specific subpopulation of veterans. Um, again, we would love for you to help get the word out. We know that many people do, um, you know, based on their history, their family, um, they really do have a desire and a drive um, to care for veterans. And this is some way that, that you can have people do this. Um, and we are going to need more, um, more caregivers and folks. Um, and that's something that we're working on marketing and things as well for. Um, but it is, it is very, very exciting. Um, we have been trying for this for a number of years. Um, so now we are working on all the different legal aspects and, um, and all of the behind the scenes um, pieces. So, um, so more to come. But again, this is just um, really, really good news. Next slide, please. Um, so just, you know, in summary, um, as, as I have indicated, we have a lot of initiatives that really are meant to, um, to support both the veteran and the caregiver. 
um, the respite program that um, at the Third River Support Program uses is actually um, part of the geriatrics and extended care office. So we really understand that, that for those those folks who are in care support, that's not 24/7 care. That there are other um, programs that the VA has that can supplement that. Um, there are some rules and things related to um, you know duplication of services. But there are, um, you know, it's a different set of eligibility. You know, there generally is no um, service-connected requirement. It's really based on clinical need. So um, we are very proud of the programs that we offer. And when I keep saying we're excited, but that's, that is how we are feeling. Um, we, you know, in the office are a bit overwhelmed by all the work coming our way, but we are so thrilled. Um, that we are able to um, you know, have expansions and, and really get some of these programs out to veterans who are just you know, so, so desperately need them. And that was my last slide. And I think we still have time for questions. Questions, anyone? Uh, thank you for your presentation. I can see why you have such enthusiasm for a well-needed uh, program. This may seem like a minor question, but almost everything that we talk about today and outreach, and how is it that we can get to the word out to those younger dads, younger caregivers, younger dads, and as they say in the marketplace, it's what's in the name. What's the deal? Does the Secretary have the authority to change your name since virtually none of your programs are geriatric? This is like a big, no wonder people go Exactly, yes. And even, you know, going onto the website, you know, and you, go, you go to va.gov forward slash geriatrics. Um, and again, just as you indicated, um, I don't know the answer to that question, but um, let me see how high up it needs to go. <laughs> <laughs> yes, no, nobody wants to be geriatric, correct? Well, that's not the criteria. It is not the criteria. Understood. Thank you for um, opening my eyes to the whole area of medical hospitals that I've never even I, I'm intrigued, but I'm also troubled, um, knowing kind of what, you know, these happens in foster homes. Um, so my question is really two-part. One is, what percentage of veterans really don't have anyone to care for? Besides financial, um, what are the benefits of, of the medical hospital? And uh, obviously, quality Um, from the um, home-based primary care um, interdisciplinary team. 
So that's physicians versus um, social workers, uh, recreational therapists. The entire interdisciplinary team is caring for that veteran in this um, in this home. Yes, that is what home-based primary care is. They come to the home. So this is for veterans who um, just getting them, you know, in would be just not um, optimal for them or for you know the care we're trying to get them in. Um, so we are expanding that program because there is a lot of unmet need out there. Um, but yes, it is a team of VA clinicians uh, who are coming out and actually providing the, the medical care um, and that support for those veterans. So they have eyes on them and are interacting with them in person. So let me say that. Um, additionally, the, um, the program itself has um, local coordinators who generally are social workers, and they are um, very in touch both with the caregivers as well as the veterans. So, you know, we work very me, hard to make sure that there is no exploitation, that there is not abuse. And, um, and one of the reasons why veterans tend to really like it is because you know, they do need that 24-7 care. And even if they potentially had someone who could help them partially, um, they may not have enough to keep them home. And so the, the draw is, is that they are in, they're really pulled in almost as a member of the family in, in many cases. We also um, work very hard, the coordinators work very hard to care um, and make sure there's a fit between the veteran and the caregiver so that it's not just a random, there's a bed, you're going to go there. It really is trying to make sure that there is a fit so that there can be that relationship. Um, and I think that's really the big difference. Yes. Yes. There are a few yeah. uh, studies that have, that have been done, you know, obviously by, by um, VA researchers um, in order to check the, um, the outcomes for the program. So um, it's, besides being popular with veterans, it is, I mean, the, the, the caregivers, obviously, they love doing it, otherwise they would not, um, because they're <coughs> not getting rich from doing it. Um, but it's, um, it just has a really high satisfaction for everybody involved. Hi, I'm John. So I'm so excited to hear about the expansion of veteran directed care. Um, you know, personally, my dad told me he was a big difference. And I learned about it first here from these meetings years ago. And then he's part of the comprehensive caregiver program, and he's just steadily getting older. And I've asked, with my mom numerous times, and she's asked her social workers, coordinators, and nobody knows what she's talking about. So my question is, how, that's what seems to part, how are you working with the comprehensive caregiver program to help veterans possibly live when they need from the comprehensive caregiver to veterans of the care? Because that will continue that staying at home and having that family caregiver. And then, how are you working to ensure that the comprehensive care 
fully aware and know where your place is going. Because right now, my mom should have no place. And what I will tell you is that with the, um, the rapid growth of the Caregiver Support Program, um, obviously that took a life of its own, um, but we are hearing exactly what, you're, what you've been saying and you are all hearing it from you know, um, the representatives from various states. So we are working, you know, we work um, very closely in general already with the Caregiver Support Service, Dr. Richardson and, and her staff. Um, but I will say that that is one of those projects that we are working on because we absolutely recognize it and we want to fix it. Because again, you know, we want those programs to be known without you. And we recognize even that from PAC team to PAC team, um, you know, primary care teams, that, it, that it, it's really a matter of knowledge. And so we're, again, we're, we're really, we are working on that. And I, I don't have a great answer of, It'll pop up on their screen and it'll because sadly we have so many things that do pop up. So we're really trying to find a way to make um, make things stick. Well, I very much appreciate you all taking the time um, to you know, to learn more, um, to allow me to come and um, brag on some of our programs, um, because it's, you know, I, I think that, that it was mentioned, you know, I, I am excited about it. I do, you know, I feel very passionate about this, and, um, and anything that, you know, we are able to, to do to really get the word out, so that those who need the programs are aware of them and, and be able to utilize them is exactly why.
where uh, an individual requires a level of assistance that they can't necessarily get at home, but they don't uh, want to or uh, can't afford to move into some sort of a nursing home. And the, the benefit there to families is that veterans often are able to maintain some level of independence in a medical foster home that they may not feel, right? I think about the Moon Warrior Project's independence fund, right? Those, those are individuals who have a lot of families supporting them often. Um, so I, I don't want anyone to go walk away with the impression that medical foster homes are folks who veterans who don't have anybody else, because that's absolutely not the case. <coughs> often families are very involved in coming over and, and taking the veteran out on activities or, or whatever it may be, or celebrating holidays, but that you know they can live in that group home, get that medical, get that hands-on care, be a part of all of the other services that VA can provide there. Um, so let's see. Uh, what else I wanted to comment on the comment about uh, Solid Start, because I actually, I too have to read the report on Solid Start. I was really impressed with the ability of us to contact folks as they're transitioning. And uh, was thinking, I wonder if there's a way for us to think about Solid Start and get in one of the, the further out contacts with better, ask that better if there's someone talk to at home about the benefits and services. Um, so anyway, I'll just throw that out there as a make habit idea <laughs> um, that may or may not have very Postal veteran tends to downplay what they Please answer them. 
Fauci reports about how um, an individual who uh, individuals were receiving services through the veteran caregiver was a part of the program on comprehensive assistance and the veteran was receiving services through the veteran directed care program. And um, you know, I, I think we need to do a much better job of helping our staff in the field figure out how to combine those two programs in a way that obviously does not fraudulent service, but actually benefits them uh, in that the entire family, all of those who are supporting that veteran. So there's a lot of work to be done in that specific area. And um, you know, I think we look forward to that as we expand that particular program. and then 
figure out how to make that happen, but then also become aware of all the services available in the community. You know, VA, historically, when I first was an intern back in 1995, in uh, the DC Medical Center here, we were, we didn't, um, there weren't a lot of services out in the community to refer veterans to. It was kind of like either VA offered it or there wasn't anything else. That has really changed significantly. And so we need um, our case managers and our social workers and others to really be knowledgeable about what that local community has to offer and then uh, partner with those programs to refer kids and other things. Um, and one of the things actually I would encourage you to ask for potentially the next um, time we're together would be a brief about some of the parenting programs that we offer. There's a program called Parent Step or Step. I'm sorry, this is a little out of my expertise, it's through the Office of Mental Health. And uh, that program is actually uh, trains parents who have um, experienced trauma. So they may have a diagnosis of PTSD or uh, military sexual trauma and helps them be better parents. Often parenting uh, training is focused on the kid, like the kid has certain issues and so you teach the parent how to deal with those issues. This is very much about helping uh, individuals who may have other challenges be a better parent. So VA is really, and there's interest on the Hill about that program. Uh, it was recently in a piece of legislation called the Deborah Sampson Act that came out a couple of years ago. So these are the kinds of things that we want to make sure everyone knows about. And we feel like the family coordinator role can be that individual at the medical center. And you may also find that in the for example, the Carrier Support Program, there's so much going on in the Carrier Support Program with the applications and providing services that we never got into a place where we can support the children in those families nearly as much as I think had been envisioned, certainly um, back 15 years ago um, when that program was first being talked about. So this person, this individual, would also be able to take on some of that in those kinds of families where there's just a lot of um, other, other questions? So as we're hearing about the solid start and some of the, briefly was mentioned about some of the survey responses and then the veteran experience and the caregiver experience, I'm just kind of wondering if there's an opportunity to triangulate some other research that's been done or surveys that have been done. And one that immediately comes to my mind is the Veterans Metrics Initiative, GBMI. Um, multi-year longitudinal study right after somebody left the military and uh, you know from my involvement with that study I found it really teased out some interesting information that if you kind of use that to triangulate with some of what we're finding with the VA surveys that kind of help us to better understand well, better understand what's going on out there uh, you know as a veteran myself I know for me it, Years, you know, you feel like you're doing fine initially, and then some period afterwards, you're not. And it takes you a while to figure that out, and then to correct course and get back to a good place. And that's a different conference for everybody. But some of those studies and surveys, coupled with what the VA is doing, I think will give us a better picture of what's out there. And maybe help us to think about how do we do better in marketing, how do 
how do we do better at outreach? How do we do better at, you know what? A lot of these people, they participated in this service, DUI, but they aren't availing themselves of VA benefits and programs. Why? Great, great point. Great point. That there is so much other information out there, and we try to really coordinate with, um, with other programs who are doing some of this. This research and this work in, in longitudinal studies certainly are incredibly powerful uh, and incredibly helpful as we think about next steps. So, great, great point. Thank you, Melissa. Thank you, Melissa. When I'm thinking about the airport's water journey and the path back, I heard today that the Secretary said cases of terminal illness at that transcend what's already at the front of the line. Is there any consideration for caregivers in that scenario? So my understanding is that that actually already happens, that veterans who are um, critically ill are moved to the front of the line in the caregiver application phase. Now that, I, I would verify that. Um, now, I think part of what you're talking about though is, is slightly different because um, the individuals who may be coming into VA through the PACT Act may not have been involved in, in VA previously, so they may not be aware of all of the um, healthcare benefits. Um, certainly, the hospice and the home and community based services are much more robust than they may have had access to out in the community. So, um, yes, we are talking about that a lot uh, about how to. How to I mean, the secretary talked about a little bit sort of this notion of if you only come to BDA or if you only file that BDA claim, how do you then know that you're, you're actually, your spouse is actually eligible for all this other stuff um, fairly quickly? And then making sure that we are packaging that information in an easy to um, digest way. And really, I would go so far as to talk about kind of like a concierge kind of service for that particular group. And then get handed off to, to the, the medical center. And um, you know, we talk about that a lot with our newly transitioning service members. And there are a lot of programs at military treatment facilities where individuals get connected to both VA and VHA. But in, in those moments, we need to replicate some of that work so that we can further um, connect them across the board. One of the things that I'm currently tasked with, and the secretary mentioned briefly, we have this new VA life insurance program, which is really very robust. And um, I'm packing a package up uh, and maybe do a little bit of a roadshow across the country around all of those services together. So, life insurance, um, the cemetery benefit, and actually register for the cemetery benefit ahead of time. So, you know, my father filled out a form in his late 50s. It, so when, you know, we, it, after we passed, if you don't want to call the money number, we didn't have to come up with a DB214 or anything, his name was already in there. And imagine the relief um, to the MC, they don't have to go find that DB214, which, you know, especially someone like my dad, who wasn't receiving a lot of care for being all along. So we, we want to make sure that families are aware of all of these things in advance, right? And, that's really hard and uh, certainly not an easy task. Uh, 
you know, but really trying to package things together in a way that is easy to digest and as people are thinking about long-term planning, they think, oh gosh, you know, these things are available to me.